Are you afraid of the dark? Maybe you were. Maybe you are. Maybe you should be. People have gathered together to share scary stories for as long as we've had words to tell them. There are tales of ghosts and goblins, witches, devils, vampires, and humans. Word of unspeakable perils and the monsters hidden right in front of us. Without the threat of real danger, we think of it as fun. And we gather, as many do, to spook each other. Painting a picture with fear as the brush and our minds as the canvas. Separately, we're very different. But one thing draws us together. The dark. So we begin with the story of a girl kept in darkness. A girl who lived and died terribly. A girl named Sarah Bogan. In a small town 200 years ago, there lived a woman on her own. You'd think her neighbors would be impressed by her ability to sustain herself alone, but back then, it just alienated her. Rumors spread about the dark and dirty things she'd do, and she got used to keeping to herself. After meeting one summer night, she found herself entangled with the mayor's son. In the cover of warm darkness, their identities didn't matter. He was free from his last name, and she was free from hearsay. Meet me here again. Tomorrow? I wouldn't be anywhere else. They met again and again in secret, lasting almost a year before she found herself with child. It didn't matter to her what others would think, nor did she consider the implications of sharing this news with her lover. She was overjoyed. And sure, he'd be eager to provide his child with nothing but the best. Yet when she delivered the news, his face went cold. The light in his eyes vanished, and his forehead creased intensely. She repeated the news, thinking he may have misheard. Don't you see what a mistake you've made? She couldn't pull enough air in her lungs to say a word. My father would never accept you or your bastard child. What makes you think anyone else would? You've ruined everything. His attendants arrived to guide her away, and she didn't have the will to fight. In an instant, the man she loved became a stranger, and everything she held so dear had been ripped away from her. His eyes had said it all. She was no longer welcome here. With a heart shattered beyond repair, she collected her belongings and fled to the woods. There, she built a small shack with her own two hands, and by the time her daughter arrived, they had a suitable home. Despite the woman's best efforts, she saw her daughter as a nuisance, a reminder of the happy life she'd never live. As Sarah grew to walk and talk, her mother only resented her more. Sarah was banished to the dark and dingy cellar, a damp, infested pit underneath the house, and her mother lived above in solitude. Sarah was given only the smallest bits of sustenance to keep her alive, and over the years, she grew up in darkness. Waiting for the days to pass, waiting for her mother to have a change of heart, 
waiting for anything, any sort of change, any sort of kindness. Many nights her mother would run away into the woods to fetch food or other goods. As soon as Sarah saw her disappear into the trees through the basement grate, she would wail to the sky. She was desperate for her cries to reach someone, anyone who could save her from her daily pain. She'd cry until her voice and energy had completely run their course and would fall asleep by the time her mother returned home by the light of the moon. But one night, someone did hear Sarah's calls. A group of children exploring the forest heard a terrible, painful sound and followed it as it got louder and louder. They found a shack of a house that barely stood out from the dense trees around it. The sounds were coming from the side of the building, where there was a small grated window no larger than a hat box. Through the rusted grating, the children could just make out the whites of Sarah's eyes. At first, she was afraid to speak to them. She had never met a strange face. But the children were kind. They asked her questions. Before she knew it, she shared her entire story of being locked away from her mother's abuse. The children listened silently to every word. When she was finished, they thanked her and told her they'd return one day. Whenever that was, she thought, it couldn't be soon enough. Not long after, an even larger group of children came to visit. Sarah was thrilled by the company, and since she had already shared her story, she made up something else. She pulled from her private hell of darkness and solitude, of crying out in vain, of never feeling love, the children devoured each and every word. As time passed, Sarah begged the children not to return so often. It was harder to keep them quiet, and they never knew when her mother could return. But the kids loved Sarah, and Sarah loved her audience. She'd remind them of the risk, and they'd distract her with fruits and candies before disappearing back into the trees, headed towards villages she'd never see herself. Then one night, Sarah's worst fear came true. Get away from there! Her mother shrieked, running towards the house, and the children gathered around the grate. They screamed and scattered, and Sarah knew to expect something dreadful as her mother descended the stairs. What did you tell them? What were you saying? It was nothing. I was telling them a story. You will never see those kids again. Sarah was frozen in fear. The last thing she saw was her mother picking up a metal spoon before her eyes were gouged from their sockets. After that, Sarah continued to cry out into the darkness, though of course there were no tears falling down her cheeks. Weeks passed, but the children did return. At first they were scared of her change in appearance, the stained bandages wrapped around her head, but they were easily distracted by another story this time about the witch who lived upstairs. The children wanted to set her free, but didn't know how. One boy offered a scrap of parchment and a pencil, vowing to deliver a message for Sarah and return with help. 
She took the items, unsure of what to do with them, and though she thought she'd hidden them sufficiently, they were easily spotted when her mother reappeared the following morning. What is this? But Sarah didn't know. What are you doing with this? Who taught you to write? I just wanted to tell them a story. Give me your hands. But Sarah refused. Give me your hands. So Sarah did. And though she couldn't see it, her mother was holding a cleaver, which came down with such force that it cut through her wrists even though it wasn't sharp at all. You'll never use those hands again! Her mother was gone. Unable to see and unable to use her hands for sight, Sarah began to waste away. The children hadn't come back in so long, and Sarah no longer wept to the sky. Much time passed before Sarah heard her mother heading back into town by moonlight. Then, a familiar rustle she hadn't heard in forever. The children had returned with all of her strength. She rose and stepped towards the window, beckoning the children to respond, offering a story, a secret, anything to keep her company. But it wasn't a child who responded. It was her mother, who hadn't gone to town at all. And it was her mother, who came back into the house with a large pair of rusty scissors. And it was her mother who used those scissors to cut out Sarah's tongue. You will never tell your stories again. No one knows what happened next. Sarah, without her senses, likely withdrew into the darkness... And the children never returned, until it was too late. Where the shack once stood was now a clearing burned into the middle of the woods. The same clearing where we sit tonight. Some say Sarah's mother finally had enough and decided to kill them both. Others think a brave child came back to put Sarah out of her misery. What we do know is that on the first anniversary of the fire, the children returned and built a campfire of their own. They told each other the stories that Sarah had shared, believing this to be the best way to honor her spirit. And thus, the tale of Sarah Boogie Woman was born. Some say if you come out here alone... You can hear Sarah wailing into the sky. Or if it's really quiet, you can catch the whisper of a creepy tale. Just make sure her mother never catches you. Her name's Cassandra. She went to a state school, somewhere out east. She's been hooking up with this guy, Apollo, who's the president of this fraternity, Alpha Ep something or other. It's the start of the new school year, and the frat is five days away from their historic, traditional toga party. Cassandra's over, helping them plan some final party details sharing in their seemingly endless supply of Miller Lite. She decides to stay the night, 
Maybe it was the beer. Maybe it was Apollo's smile. Maybe a small part of her knew tonight would change everything. It's now two in the morning, and Cassandra needs to pee. The bathroom on the first floor is much cleaner than the bathroom on the second, so she creeps toward the staircase. The walls are lined with photographs of old pledge classes. She slows down to look at them. Each photograph was nearly identical. The brothers, lined up in front of the house, dressed in their toga costumes, stiff and unsmiling. She stops in front of last year's picture. Their eyes. It's something in their eyes. She thinks about something her grandmother would always say. A photograph traps the soul. Cassandra peels away from the pictures. She still needs to pee. She reaches the staircase, left hand clinging to the banister, and begins to walk down, unable to stop thinking about the photographs. Why do all frat boys have such dead eyes? She's so distracted by their sad, stoic faces that she doesn't realize she's reached the bottom of the staircase until her foot falls onto the cold stone floor. She stumbles, writes herself, and realizes she isn't on the first floor at all. She's in the basement. I didn't know there was a basement. She slides her hand along the wall to search for a light switch, and the hair on the back of her neck stands up. The walls are covered in carpet. She flips the light switch on, only to immediately wish she hadn't. A dim light bulb, glowing red, sputters to life in the center of the room. The basement is filled with shit. Shelves cluttered with boxes, boxes overflowing with papers, old beer pong tables stacked against the wall, photographs of the frat scattered around, the steps of the house bare of brothers. But it's not the mess that makes Cassandra freeze. It's the stand in the middle of the room. More importantly, it's the box on top of it. She steps slowly towards it. The box seems like an ordinary cardboard box, but the red glow of the light bulb and the rickety stand it perches on give it something else. It feels ancient, otherworldly, like a shrine, but to something long forgotten by everyone but a few. Something inside of it calls out to her. She watches her hands move of their own accord, fingertips brushing against the cardboard lid, and as she opens it... How did you get down here? I took the stairs. Normally, his confident, easy gait strikes her as attractive, or at least familiar. But in the basement, in the red light, he looks menacing, like an angry god. You can look. She stares into the box. It's filled with slips of paper, each with something scrawled on it in the chicken-scratch handwriting of a boy. She reaches in, pulling out one slip at a time. They all have a name. Roshni Desai. 
Paloma Green. Daniela Marquez. She stops. She doesn't want to find her own name. What is this? Tradition. Every Alpha Ep wannabe gets a name. Last person to get their name back in the box with proof loses. Proof of what? What the fuck? That is fucked, Apollo. What if someone doesn't want to play? It's not a game. We have to do this. You don't have to do anything. Do these girls even know their names are down here? It's not about the girls, Cass. There's nothing to do with them. Alpha Epp's been doing this forever. There's got to be a loser. They get dissociated. We get to keep going. Get to keep going? There's always a cost. What the fuck are you talking about? Apollo, this is some fucked up hazing ritual. I can't let you do this. No one will believe you. Tradition is tradition, Cass. Come on. I'll take you home. Cassandra went to her roommate first. But her roommate only said, So they have a weird hazing ritual. What can we do about it? She went to her RA, but her RA only said, I understand why that might be stressful, but it's probably more innocent than you think. Besides, are you sure that's what you saw? She knows she's going to have to take matters into her own hands. The night of the party, she's gonna have to do something about the box. Steal it. Bring her own physical proof to the administration, or to the girls at the party, or to anyone that would believe her. She dresses in her costume, walks up the front steps of the house, and pushes her way inside. The music's blasting. The lights are dim. And everywhere she looks, she can see the brothers in their togas, like ghosts. She refuses every drink offered her, every joint, anything that could muddy her. She pushes through the throng of people, wishing she had the foresight to take as many names out of the box as she could have. The box, she thinks. I just have to get to the box. Finally, she finds the staircase. She closes her eyes, left hand on the banister, and starts to walk down. She tries to recreate exactly what she did that fateful night. She thinks of the pictures upstairs, of the frat boys lined up on the stairs like tombstones or teeth, their dead eyes leering at her from behind the glass. A photograph traps the soul. The music's getting quieter, and the party's noise begins to fade. And suddenly, she's in complete silence. Her foot reaches the last stair. Her hand falls from the banister. She opens her eyes. She's alone. The room glows red. The box sits in the center, a pulsing, beating thing, luring her closer and closer. She reaches the box, her fingertips brushing against the lid, and as she goes to pull it open... I don't want to do this. The sound of footsteps, marching down the staircase. She doesn't have time to think. Cassandra hides herself behind one of the shelves on the far side of the room, peering out between boxes. Six fraternity brothers, dressed in their togas, carry in a seventh. The boy is struggling, but they outnumber him. They're stronger. 
Their faces are hidden behind masks. White masks with no mouths. Just gaping eyes staring into nothing. One brother breaks away to drag a beer pong table into the center of the room, right in front of the box. Right where Cassandra had just been standing. The other five place the struggling boy on top of it. I'm not going to do this. Then you lose. Cassandra watches as the brothers surround the table, strapping the boy down with something. Belts? Ropes? She can't tell. They move quickly, in unison, like they've rehearsed, or they've always known the movements. The tallest among them grabs a picture, one of the house with its steps empty, and holds it over the boy. The light is growing brighter. The box is glowing. The boy is struggling, but the brothers... The brothers are swept up in the horrible bacchanal. It's like they couldn't stop even if they wanted to. Cassandra wants to shout or scream or stop them somehow from doing whatever it is they're about to do. But she's frozen. And before she can shake herself out of it, the picture frame clatters to the table and the brothers fall silent. And the boy is gone. It's done. You can come out now, Cass. She stands, afraid to speak. If she opens her mouth, she knows. She'll start to scream. And she doesn't know if she'll ever stop. She doesn't want to look. She already knows what she'll see. But still, she needs to know for sure. She needs the truth. She forces herself to look down at the picture. The boy that was just strapped to the table stares back at her from the painting. She swears she can still hear him screaming. There's always a cost. It's... Don't say it's tradition. Necessary. He saved us. He didn't want to play your game. It's not a game. Come on, Cass. Party's waiting. The box glows. Like a lighthouse or a lure. Empty for another year. Her plan seems so simplistic now. So hopeless. How could stealing a box of names stop whatever had been spreading like a plague below their feet? A photograph traps the soul. But her grandmother never specified whose soul. The subject of the photograph... The person who took it, or the people who watched as it happened. Charlotte? Charlotte's clearly not here. I assume she's gone jogging. Something is off. I have the recorder. I'm talking to you, whoever you may be. Maybe it was because of the squeak on the last stair. Maybe it was that painting that Charlotte was painting of timber wolves. You can get more for painting timber wolves lately, the, um, the Americana thing. But 
I thought about the coyotes. A pack of five has practically moved into the neighborhood. You can hear them at night. They get loud at night, but last night I didn't hear them. And I was remembering that when I hit the last step. But before I ever saw the coyotes, weeks ago there was a sound, something crashing to earth. Someone has found more of those heated craters. Meteors. How could we not know? Last night, uh, the fight we had, excuse me, uh, debate. Charlotte's family were here. Conservative, even for now. I didn't cook. Charlotte cooked, but I slipped out onto the porch and I noticed five stars in the sky that I could see. Constellations. Orion. Polaris? I'm shit with constellations, but the skies were clear. Charlotte's dad called me in. They do not like me. They don't like that Charlotte and I are together. They want to pray before we eat. But her dad asked, Do you still have God in your heart? And Charlotte appeased them. She always does. But I I just let it out. We were here to shepherd the earth. We were here to shepherd the living, the animals, our neighbors. Look around us, the world we are living in. What are we doing? Parents fled. Back to the hotel. Do I do? Charlotte's green eyes flashing red. So, no sex. So, no howling coyotes. Did you hear them? The coyotes in the hills? We moved here from Chicago when it fell the Midwest. The craters, the first ones, the fires started. Something had landed but wasn't found. And the animals began to move to the West. I wasn't getting work there. Photographer. I became of use to the officials. Documentation. You have heard them, haven't you? The howling? The cries? You've seen them? Or was I the only one? The kitchen is here. As I approach the door, there is no sound. Have you ever tried to describe that? No sound? How do you describe a missing world? Black. Like someone had taken black charcoal like flame. Snuffed. My phone. Habit, no signal. I stand where the lawn was. I stand where the road used to be. The trees are burnt and black but tall. I walk. The sun. There is no sound. It is like the air is thick and takes in what I utter. I go where the road used to go and I see what I used to see and my feet are black like coal. The glint. Thin, shining shapes, gleaming colors. Red, silver, blue. Wheels. Cars, thin like dimes, melted. The empty trees, crows, the sparrows. Watching me? I know all the birds and hills and all that moves. Second day. I reached the diner, Tessa's. 
There is still electricity, and I'm not sure why. Coffee? Warm? I'm starving. I eat toast? An egg? A cat. A very thin cat, black and white. It crawls out from under the kitchen sink. In its mouth, an eye. Green. Hello, Charlotte. What frightens us is the anticipation of something that has happened, only you don't know. Time does not exist without change. How do you know you have changed? Third day. The eye is in my pocket. The cat follows. She stops and twitches. I scoop her up onto my shoulder. The houses are here, but hollow, black. Lights on. Lights on. No one home. No bodies. On the ground, I pass a symbol and a circle. Teeth and wings. Fourth day. I keep walking as if I know where I'm going. Before it all began, before I woke up and Charlotte was gone. Before the parents. Before the meters crashing to earth. Before the coyotes. That day at the station, I arrived to work. I was called. A pet dog at the gate, I brushed by and it woke up. The official tells me this man in front of me has done very, very bad things. The official is lying. They all do. Staring at the bloodied man, his grimace, a grin. I come closer and he opened his jaw. Was the dog at the gate watching? I saw the man's face. This isn't documentation. The official wants to remember this. Art was commissioned. Payment was given. They crushed his skull. I took his picture. The official, I assume, hung it in the living room, framed. And something in me spilled open. Cracked. Fifth day. Now. The fire. I smell it. Five coyotes. Five golden jackals. Just the sight of them on the hill. Something in my body floods with terror and happiness. Their fur glistens like the sun as they strike the ground in their stride. Their thoughts ripple to me. My memory. The man before they tortured him to death. As I was so close as I snapped. His jaws... His teeth, his grin, he pulls me closer, whispers. When human beings choose this, when this is the choice, this, this is how the world ends. Everyone has disappeared. I am the only human but the animals. This world is theirs now. I realize... I am the last one spared when I, I choose, I...
and out of my throat it comes. It climbs my skin. It ripples. It moves and out of it. The reaching of claws from my skin. The flapping of wings out of my mouth. My jaws wide. Out of it crawls a creature after creature. A repopulation of the earth. The cat crawls in. I don't know how. I don't know how, but it is happening. Through my jaws. Through my cookie teeth. My very skull. I crack open the cat. She calls them. She Fellow creatures, we trusted the two legs. They failed us. Support has come to us from the stars. We continue to move west together. We of the fur, of the eye, of the wing, of the tooth have called for help. It is here of Orion, Polaris, the sun. Do you see this human's eye? She was the last to see. She is our mother. We speak to who she speaks. Do you not hear us? Look into the fire. Weigh your grief. Prepare. Our night begins in the new world. My mom was watching Jesse, our newborn, and my wife and I were on our way to see a house we hoped to rent. Molly was relocating for work, and we didn't have much time to put things in order. I was excited for the change, though a bit hesitant to pack up our lives and move so quickly. The house was brick and fairly nondescript. There were neighbors a couple hundred yards away on each side, close enough to feel suburban, but far enough to feel like everyone has their own space. Molly pulled up and parked along the curb, even though the driveway was clear. We got out of the car, and as we walked toward the house, a tall man with shaggy white hair came out, shielding the sun from his eyes. He was quiet and weak, and his name, he said, was Mr. Hart. He was a little weird, but nice enough that we brushed it off. We toured the home. It was suitable for what we needed, but never something I would have picked out if I had a choice. As we finished the tour, Mr. Hart offered to give us a few minutes alone. Molly had that look in her eyes where I knew her mind was already made. She insisted we should apply. If the approval came through in a week, we'd be able to move right after and she'd only have to commute from our old place for a few days. It did make sense. I agreed and sat in the car while they talked details. When Molly came back, she was beaming. We're already approved. What? He just wants to get rid of the place. He used to live here with his wife, and when she died, he couldn't stay without her. It's so sad. He hates showing the place. He was practically convincing me that we should take it. I already got him a check. I felt this was kind of odd, but didn't want to rain on the excitement. We were free to move in as early as the next day and would take care of the paperwork later. When we arrived with our truck, the house key was waiting under the mat. A few days passed, and we'd gotten everything in. It was my first time being alone in the house with the baby, with Molly at work. 
The laundry was in the basement, and while the baby napped upstairs, I went down to put a load in. The stairs came down in the middle of the basement, and then you had to take a sharp turn and walk all the way towards the back to get to the washer and dryer. Above them was this large fluorescent light encased in a red plastic shield and a metal grate. It basically looked like an emergency light. I turned it on, and it emitted a deep, monstrous hum. Every corner of the basement illuminated in a ghastly blood-red glow. I couldn't imagine what it was used for, but I certainly didn't need it. I quickly turned it back off and threw the laundry in. As I got to the top of the stairs, I heard a click, followed once again by a deep, familiar hum. I turned around, and sure enough, the basement was once again glowing red. I took a breath and took the first step, then the next. I probably didn't turn the switch back off all the way, and the vibrations of the laundry pushed the light back on. This logical thought gave me the confidence I needed to round the corner and return to the back of the basement, where I flipped the light back off once again. The humming stopped, and I stood in the quiet glow of a single light bulb at the foot of the stairs. I looked again to the red light and saw it had its own plug. I followed the cord and yanked it from the outlet. As I reached the top of the stairs, I heard the hum again. Pins and needles ran through my entire body. I closed my eyes, took a breath, and turned around. The basement was glowing red. I took one step down. What was I going to do? I took the next. The humming grew louder. I reached the bottom of the staircase and turned towards the light. Just as I confirmed with my eyes that it was still unplugged, it snapped, flickered, and turned off. I stood there for a moment, listening to my own breath. And then, the light came on again. I stepped towards it, and it clicked off. I waited and took another step. It clicked on again. I kept moving across the basement, and the flickering grew faster and faster, the humming louder and louder. The strobing made it almost impossible to see. I reached toward the grating. <gasps> Every light in the basement went out at once. I ran as quickly as I could, smashing into old boxes and furniture as I made my way by the dim light bleeding down the stairs. I climbed up on all fours and slammed the door behind me, trying to catch my breath. I heard the baby crying in his bedroom. When Molly got home, I could tell she didn't believe me, even though she saw how upset I was. She went downstairs alone to replace the bulb that had blown out. The red light wouldn't work for her, even after plugging it back in and flipping the switch. Still, she removed the grate and took it down at my request. A few days later, I'd almost forgotten about what had happened. I got a little nervous doing laundry, but with the red light off the wall, I was able to convince myself that Molly was right. We were safe. Jesse was once again down for his afternoon nap, and Molly was working. I was watching daytime TV and unpacking boxes when there was a sudden, loud knock on the door. I turned the TV off and wiped off my hands, getting quickly to the door. But there was nobody there. I hadn't seen any kids around the neighborhood, but I don't know. I guess I assumed it must have been a joke. I shut the door and went back to the boxes. I was busy and stressed, and it was kind of easy to just put it behind me. But then, a little while later, it happened again. I rushed to the door without missing a beat, but once again there was no one there. I stepped out onto the front porch and took a long look in each direction. No one. I went back inside and decided to check on the baby. He was gurgling in the crib, so I picked him up and walked around with him for a bit before I sat down with him in the rocking chair. Before I knew it, we had both dozed off. Another knock and it was loud. 
But I was upstairs, far from the front door. How could it have been? My heart sank as I realized the sound hadn't come from the front door. The knock came from the bedroom door that I didn't remember closing. Molly? I asked. Nothing. My heart was throbbing and my mouth was dry. I gently put the baby back in his crib and took a cautious step toward the door. Molly? I nearly screamed and rushed to lock the door. Falling to my knees, I looked through the crack into the hallway. But there was no one there. I stayed locked in that room with Jesse until Molly got home. I was too scared to do anything else. Molly suggested having my mother come stay for a few days, but I knew I was ready to leave. She wouldn't have it. Babe, it's just the sounds of an old house settling. You'll get used to it. As always, she was able to calm me down. I plan to start spending our days away from the house, running errands or visiting the park. The less time in the house without Molly, the better. But only a bit later, we were watching a movie on the couch when... We were both startled by a large thud directly above us, like something heavy had hit the floor hard. This was Jesse's room. Without saying a word, we bolted up the stairs. We could hear the baby shrieking. As we opened the door, I expected Jesse's crying to get louder, but it remained muffled. The bright moonlight came through the windows and the heavy antique curtains had been torn down, left in a tall heap on the floor. The crying was coming from inside the pile. We threw everything aside, digging towards the sound before Molly pulled Jesse from the curtains. Thank God he wasn't hurt, but it was enough of a scare. Molly finally agreed. She'd call Mr. Hart tomorrow and discuss our options. The three of us slept together in one room that night with all the lights on. The next day, Molly was busy trying to reach Mr. Hart and sort out missing a few days of work while I repacked the boxes that I had unloaded. The baby never left my sight. Of course, we cared about the money we'd lose in rent, but it was more important for us to feel safe. I found myself terrified to do anything in that house. We'd gotten a moving truck and Molly planned to stay in a hotel while Jesse and I went back home to my mother's for a bit. Anything was better than there. Jesse needed his teething ring, which we'd left upstairs. I didn't want to go upstairs alone, but I couldn't pull Molly from the phone and it would only take a second. I grabbed a box of Jesse's things and stepped towards the door, but tripped and fell hard, spilling baby clothes onto the large throw rug that covered the original floors. A few of the rooms had rugs like these when we moved in. Somehow, the rug had gotten bunched up. As I bent over to fix it, I instead decided to pull it up, walking backwards towards the center of the room. In the middle of the floor was a large, deep brown stain covering the floorboards, exactly where we'd found Jesse the night before. I dropped the carpet and ran down the stairs to get Molly, but she didn't acknowledge me. She was staring at something confused. After a few moments, she turned to me and handed me a check. The check she'd written for Mr. Hart on the day we met. It had never been cashed. It had never left the house. Standing in the sun by the truck, I felt a massive sense of relief knowing I'd never have to go inside again. As we loaded up the last of our things, a neighbor I'd never seen made his way down the street toward us. I never got the chance to come and introduce myself, and you're already on the way out. I know, I'm so sorry, I said. We've had a last-minute change of plans. I was honestly surprised to see anyone come into the place, being forward with you. I asked him to elaborate. His wife. She was old and sick, bedridden. But she hated relying on him for everything. She wanted to open the curtains and let some light in, but she couldn't reach him on her own. She pulled over a stool and stretched for the corner when... Her husband knocked on the door. It scared her so bad they say she fell face first toward the floor, smashed her whole face in. The worst part? 
Her husband somehow didn't hear a thing, so he assumed she was asleep. He went downstairs and made dinner while she bled out on the floor. Do you know which room this was? She had the room upstairs, in the front of the house. His eyes lifted to the windows of the room that, until today, had belonged to my infant son. I felt sick. Thanks for telling me, I said. That poor old man, it's so terrible. But I wish he had mentioned all that to us when we met him. The neighbor looked back at me like I had lost my mind. You couldn't have met him, he said. The night he found her, he hanged himself in the same room. Mr. Hart has been dead for months. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful young girl who lived deep in the dark, dark forest. Her name was Mary. Mary was the mirror image of her doting, adoring mother. They shared rich auburn hair, shiny blue eyes, and a laugh like wind chimes. Though they lived far from any village, they were content. Her mother filled her childhood with every trinket, every toy, every tiny bit of joy she could provide her beloved daughter. Every day, the little girl would wander through the wood, picking berries and herbs. Every night, her mother would make her daughter tea and read until she fell asleep. Though Mary loved her mother, sometimes she would grow lonely. And during those times, she learned to make friends in the forest. Fairies, unicorns, imaginary friends. She loved the woods, but she knew to fear it, too. Witches ride at night. Her mother would tell her, wrapping her arms of protection around Mary's shuddering shoulders. Monsters awake from their slumber and wolves devour all they find. At age 11, Mary and her mother had a fight in front of the same fire, reading the same stories, drinking the same tea as they did night after night after night. Mary told her mother she was bored, that she never let her go anywhere, that she was going crazy. And for a moment, her mother's eyes flashed with something Mary had never seen before. Something like fire. But as soon as it was there, it was gone, and Mary's mother sobbed. That night, Mary took the teacups into the kitchen, and in that kind of silent, petty revenge teenagers excel in, she dumped the rest of her tea out instead of finishing it. And that's the night she heard the monster. Mary had never woken up in the middle of the night before, but here she was, awake, with the shining moon high overhead. She wondered at the vastness of the night sky, her breath fogging the glass in her window. And then she heard it. It came from directly below Mary's bedroom. It was the loudest, most heart-wrenching, terrible scream she had ever heard. The walls shook with it. Birds fled the trees, flying across the moon. Whatever it was, it screamed, and it screamed, and it screamed. Mary buried her face into her pillow, plugging her ears with all her might. But the screaming continued to haunt her, and she lied awake until she saw the sun. Mother? Did you hear the wailing last night? The plate her mother was drying had fallen to the floor. My dearest, you must have had a nightmare. No, 
I was awake. I kept hearing the most horrible sounds. Mary's mother raced to her beloved daughter and wrapped her in her arms. Oh, my darling. You heard one of the monsters of the forest. Like I've told you, the night is when they rule this earthly plane. But in the morning, the monsters are gone. That night, Mary's mother watched as she drank every drop of her tea. That convinced her. Mary didn't know why her mother was drugging her asleep, but she was determined to find out. So Mary got clever. It took some time, but she learned how to sneak mouthfuls of tea back into the cup, pour it into plants behind her mother's back. And in that time, she heard more and more every night. Thumps. Moans. Weeping. Unearthly, gurgling cries. All at night, all from below her floorboards. Weeks later, Mary convinced her mother to let her take her tea to her room so she could read in bed. Instead, she dumped the tea out of the window. With all her wits about her, she was determined to find the truth. Late that night, she waited for the first of the moans. When it came, she stole from her bed, peeled back her rug, and pressed her ear to the floorboards. And she knocked. It heard her. Uh, Hello? The sounds were moving. Keeping her ear to the floor, she followed the thumps across the floorboards, up the wall, out her door, and down the hall, and there they stopped. Mary's mother was a weaver, and her masterpiece tapestry hung in the hallway. It told the story of a blue-eyed princess falling in love with a prince with corn-blonde hair and eyes green as emeralds. It came from right behind the tapestry. But how? Mary's fingers found the edges of the fairy tale tapestry and peeled them back. A door. Mary reached for the handle, took a deep breath, and pulled. Darkness. She grabbed an oil lamp lit it, and made her way down the narrow, secret passageway. Colder and colder with each dirty stone step, the light from the oil lamp reached into the shadows, embracing and exposing the space within. It was a room the exact size of Mary's, but inverse. Instead of a goose feather bed, there was a filthy pile of straw. The room's only decoration were two framed pictures lit by the light of the moon creeping in from a single barred grate, serving as its only window. Mary crept to the pictures, raising her lamp to the first. It was her mother, younger, happier, with a handsome, gorgeous man, a man with hair blonde as corn, eyes green as emeralds. The second picture was her mother as well, looking worn, tired, a forced smile but fury in her eyes, flanked by two little girls, young enough not to remember that day, one the spitting image of her mother, the other with hair the color of corn and eyes green as emeralds. Suddenly Mary knew she was not alone. As she slowly turned her head, she saw her. It was like looking into a cursed, inverted mirror. The bloody, mangled girl stumbled her way to Mary. Bruised arms reached out for her as if to grasp her, if they could. She didn't have any hands. 
Mary's hands shook, but her heart swelled, and she placed her hands on the bloody, eyeless face of her sister. And Mary realized she had been mistaken. The monster had been living upstairs the whole time. Mary grasped her sister tight as low, gurgling sobs escaped her tongueless mouth. Mary whispered into her undamaged ears, I'll get you out of here, I promise! And for a moment, it seemed possible. Beautifully possible. But then they heard wind chimes. The monster had found them. Mary, sweetest, go back upstairs. We know there was a struggle. No, not without my sister! And there was a knife. You were never meant to know. And Mary failed to save her sister. But oil lamps are fickle things. And straw is so flammable. And teenage girls are strong creatures. Especially when they have watched a sister die. And doors are so easily locked. (laughs) Mary fled the burning house, determined to find peace for her sister. She found answers in occult teachings and blood knowledge. She learned that sometimes terrible things anchor us. Terrible things like dying in your dungeon with the one who locked you there. So she made a plan to set her sister free. A blood ritual, a conjuring spell to bring Sarah back. Her sister deserved revenge against the town who knew she suffered and did nothing to stop it. Mary Bogan created the Boogie Woman. And now, Sarah is free. Sarah is free. Sarah is free. Scary Stories Around the Fire Produced by Random Acts Featuring The Boogie Woman Written by Brian Renaud and Savannah Ray Told by Shannon Lee Weber Featuring Serafina Vecchio, Aaron Holland, and Shayna Somerville Trojan Written by Bianca Phipps Told by Samantha Garcia Featuring Courtney Filer and Aaron Holland The New World, written by Crystal Skillman, directed by Sarah Storm, featuring Allie Bailey. Knock Knock, written by Brian Renaud, told by Angie Campbell, featuring Shannon Lee Weber and Aaron Holland. Mary's Story, written by Savannah Ray and Brian Renaud, told by Dana Maisel. Featuring Serafina Vecchio and Shayna Somerville. Thank you for supporting independent artists. Please make a donation today at randomxnetwork.com. <laughs>